Welcome to the Random Redux Review Podcast. This is episode number seven, I think. I'm pretty sure it's seven. Yeah, it's seven. Anyway, this particular episode uh, features another musical guest. This is kind of like the second of three episodes that I kind of have in, in this series that, yeah, they're kind of about music people, but they're also kind of not really about music people. So this episode's guest, Bill Stevenson, is a guy who has been in three very notable punk rock bands, first being Descendants, Black Flag another, and then also All. I would be remiss not to give a shout out to the Docs Till Death podcast, which brought a documentary to my attention called Filmage, which in many ways is just about Bill Stevenson, although it covers the history of Descendants and All. But um, at one point, they talk about Bill Stevenson having a brain tumor. So me also having a brain tumor, my ears perked up and got me curious to find out more. Anyway, um, check out Docs Till Death, uh, especially their their episode on Filmage. They also interview uh, one of the filmmakers in another one. Anyway, it's a good podcast. Anyway, if you are interested in anything punk rock at all. So anyway, this episode, this particular interview with Bill Stevenson, I wanted to leave relatively unedited, mostly just because I think Bill Stevenson himself is a very sort of earnest, on the surface kind of guy. He lacks any sort of real pretensions. I mean, I think there's anybody who probably has the right to have a little bit of an ego at somebody like him, just living the life he's lived and some of the things he's accomplished and the bands he's played with and and all that but he's not you'll hear him repeatedly sort of give his own perspective on on his place in music history and all that which is nice i think there's a lot to be taken from this particular interview i mean just simply put i mean he never set out to be a punk rock icon yet he is he liked to do certain things and he worked hard at it and slowly incrementally over time kind of paid off and even now he doesn't view himself as sort of an icon very very clearly and just very grateful for you know everything that he's accomplished and and earned in this life so i think there's a lot to be taken from that that goes way beyond music i don't know maybe you disagree but uh you know it's a food for thought anyway Enjoy this interview with Bill without any of my sort of goofy, pretentious, and weird weirdness injected into it. Hopefully you listen to this episode and get sort of a sense of gratitude and maybe a perspective, a word that he uses several times. Anyway, I'm going to show up now with all the new AG cycle babble. Just enjoy this interview. I'll talk to you some more afterwards. Well, we started the band when we were 15. We just wanted to play music and have fun and, you know, hang out with each other. Um, The band was and it continues to be first and foremost a a camaraderie. Some people have a a book club or they have a, a sports team that they're all part of or maybe a virtual sports team or maybe they all meet on Tuesdays and Fridays and drink beer. Whatever they do, they go skateboarding together, they go fishing together. You know, that's their camaraderie. That's what gives them happiness. And that's what the band has, has done for me. It gave me happiness at, at a time in my life when, frankly, I didn't have really 
any friends uh, to speak of, not, not any that I've, not any friendships that I valued. The band was kind of everything to me. And then when it came time to think about, well, where do we go with the band? Like, do we start touring after we had, of course, gotten a little bit of recognition? Well, do we start touring or what do we do? We just kind of put one foot in front of the other. The first step seemed to be to, to get a, to get kind of a, like a really solid practice room where we could practice kind of every day where we weren't tearing down and setting up the gear all the time or doing it by the hour or just, you know, borrowing people's garages. So we kind of built our own little tiny, tiny headquarters where we slept and practiced and conducted whatever business there was to conduct to do with the band. So basically I'm talking about a room I'm talking about a room the size of a like a medium-sized living room. Okay, and I slept on the floor or in a makeshift bunk bed scenario for 20 years. But it didn't seem it wasn't like this hard decision like, "Oh, I'm going to take the take the life of a of a starving artist or a suffering artist." It just seemed like that that was the next step was to kind of get to get really good and to not have college or a day job, to not have any kind of any stuff distracting from the band. So that was the next step. We didn't know whether it was going to work. We, you know, we had developed a following in LA and a little, a little bit in San Francisco, maybe a little bit in Phoenix. We had gone, you know, on those little trips, but we had never toured. So we, you know, we thought, well, let's try it. Let's see how it goes. And uh, then, then the next step was, okay, we got to get a van. And it's just, you know, one step after the other. And then, okay, we got we to gotta get shows. Let's find someone to help us book shows. In the beginning, there was no money. I mean, for a long time, it was like we would each take $5 per day out of the money that we had. But most of the money really just went into the gas tank. You know, that's the thing. You think about the gas tank. Well, hey, they paid us gas money. But that, that, what that doesn't take into account is like when your transmission blows up. That's back in those dollars. That's three grand. And, you know, when you're making 50% of the door and 20 people came to see you, you know, that obviously there's no tranny there, mm -hmm. no transmission. So it was, <laughs> it was really um, difficult, but... I guess what point I'm making, there was there were never points where I was like kind of throw my hands up in the air and say, God, I can't do this anymore because I loved it. I loved it so much. And we all loved it so much that it was just like, yeah, let's just do this. So what if I have to borrow money from my dad to get the engine rebuilt? Or so what if I have to borrow money from my dad to, to buy a new van when I'm tired of putting money into this first one? And we just kind of trudged on, trudged on and trudged on and trudged on. and. Sooner or later, we kind of got a little bit of relief when we, we built up an audience big enough to where we could actually make a little bit of money. I remember it was a big deal when we went from like a $5 a day that we would each get. They call that a per diem, which is French for per day, or to, to a $10 per diem, and then to a $20 per diem. Like in 1970, in 1987, when we were all getting $20 per diems, 
man, we thought we might as well have been Van Halen. We thought we were the kings of the world. So, you know, I guess it's all a matter of perspective, right? And a matter of life goals. I've never been particularly uh, materialistic, so I don't want, you know, things. I don't want status, stature. I don't, I, back then, I didn't even want security because I didn't have any health problems. You know, there was no doctor, no dentist in the picture. We were just kind of ready to do whatever we had to do. Well, you were also young and probably felt a little bit invincible to a certain degree, too. I sure did. I felt invincible until like 2005 when I just started to feel that my health wasn't holding up, uh, which I guess, I guess that would have been like the very beginnings of that brain tumor having effect on me. But I didn't know that at the time, of course. Yeah, I'd like to come back to that in a little bit, if you don't mind. But I want to take a step back a little bit, just sort of like I, I, kind of what you're saying about like what was sort of driving you and all your. I mean, all I can do is speak from my own experience. While it was on a much smaller scale, my first band that I was in like was everything to me, and and I, I can just imagine being, you know, a teenager like you and just being like this is fun. I like these, like these people. I want to do this. This let's, and it's just one step after another until, you know, something bigger happens, which is probably wasn't even in, in your mind at the time, especially going, I, I imagine like, you know, 78 through 81, 82. It's like the idea of making a living from punk rock was probably fairly ridiculous. Oh yeah. That, that never, that never crossed our mind. Like making a living in the in the typical sense of a living. But, too, you got to remember, $20 a day in some parts of the world, would you would be rich if you made $20 a day in some parts of the world. So, you know, again, it's perspective. Yeah, and that's kind of what I think is sort of a bigger reason why I mentioned this, is because I think you do have that sort of perspective where there's like sort of a bigger thing going on where you're not thinking about certain elements of life. I'm just kind of wondering, like, I mean, there. I'm just wondering if there was a point, like, you know, you maybe get to your mid or late 20s and you're like, okay, maybe it's time to think about, like, putting this aside and getting a quote-unquote real job. I mean, I, I'm just wondering, like, if that cro ever crossed your mind and if so, like, what happened? Well, so, yeah, okay, so for me as an individual, no, that thought never never crossed my mind but a, a couple of things happened uh one is that i started a family now it's not just me happily sleeping on the floor you know it's it's me pr taking care of providing for my family and so then i i made one big change which was that uh somewhere along the way you know we built a recording studio we got a hold of during the whole mall punk uh, revolution, you know, in the early 90s, we managed to secure a kind of ridiculously large record deal. Uh, I guess these labels feel like we were sort of the progenitors of what was happening. So, you know, we deserve a good record deal. So we, we took that money and built a studio. We built the blasting room. And yeah, it wasn't long after we built the blasting room that I started a family, you know, a couple of us did. And so at that point, I decided it would make sense to split my time between audio engineering, where I could 
still be home, you know, at least in the evenings and in the mornings. It split my time between audio engineering and touring. So we that's it. let's just say we went from doing 200 shows a year to doing 100. So that that was I think that was it didn't seem conscious at the time though because what was this happening is more and more bands were calling us Stefan and I to produce records for them. And so it, it, again it was just kind of organic cuz I do enjoy doing that. I I love music, you know, so it's anything involved with it, you know, then you've got my attention. And so so yeah, then I sort of started splitting my time between engineering and drumming and songwriting. Yeah. I mean, I guess this doesn't seem directly related. In my mind, it is. But I guess it's just sort of going back to what you were saying about just sort of like, you know, being young and just really enjoying music and the camaraderie and all that. It's like, I mean, I don't know what the actual relationship is, was at the time. But, you know, like when, like, say, Descendants is starting out, you know, another band, Black Flag, which you would go go on to join for a while. I'm just wondering, like, when they sort of asked you to sort of sign on for a while. I mean, kind of, I mean, were they like, I mean, the experience of sort of like a band that you're friendly with, but then probably also a band that I imagine you had a lot of respect for and liked a lot, just sort of how that sort of played into sort of like this, this love of music and just kind of this, this is my lifestyle. This is what I like to do, whether there's money in it or not. Yeah, uh, Black Black Flag were very close neighbors and friends of ours, if you will. The the truth of the matter is that Black Flag, Descendants, Sacrament Trust, Circle Jerks, and Pennywise, we all come from a very, very small little area. Many of us went to the same high school. Descendants and Black Flag, we all went to the same high school, but they went they went before we did. It was familiar, you know, to join Black Flag. They were some of my best friends, and I admired them tremendously and looked up to them as a band and what the band stood for and also as individuals. And I certainly, you know, in my tenure there, I certainly learned a lot of disciplines, a lot of skills. Uh, I learned a lot about life. So it was a, it was just a great experience for me all around. But at the same time, it was still, it was still $20 a day. That that part of it didn't. It's not like it became a rock star overnight. I mean, we were playing the same clubs. It's just with Black Flag, the clubs would be full, and with the Senate, the clubs would be half full. It should also be noted that one of one of my main impetus, again, it wasn't really conscious, but Milo had Milo had gone down to San Diego to to start college, thus the album title, you know, and so the Senate were kind of in a we were relegated to a very much like a part-time status at that point. And so join, joining Black Flag seemed kind of like the right move for me if I just if I wanted to just keep playing music, well these would be these would be kind of the second best people to do it with. So the opportunity to play with them was a fortuitous sort of chain of events so to speak. I, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Plus it took a while for me to actually join because Okay, Robo, their original drummer, Robo, he he is a Colombian citizen. And so Robo kept getting deported when they would travel overseas or even sometimes when they wouldn't travel overseas. He kept getting deported. And whenever he would get deported, I would fill in and play shows. 
until such a time as we could work it out where Robo would get his paperwork together a little bit. And then he would go to Cabo San Lucas from Colombia. And then we would drive down to the tip of Baja and get him and smuggle him across. You know, but, that, you know, that became tiresome for Chuck, Chuck and Greg after a while. So they, after that happened several times, you know, and each time I filled in, they told him they didn't want him in the band anymore. And then even after that, I was still just filling in because I, my, I mean, my, my allegiance was to descendants and, you know, my heart. So they had a couple other drummers come in for like a month, two or three months each, and then, and then they would quit. So at a certain point, it was kind of like, look, Bill, you just have to join the band like to, so we don't have to just keep being without a drummer ever, forever, you know? This is my perspective. Like literally the first punk rock record I ever heard was My War by Black Flag. I was 11 years old when it came out. And that was a, a sort of very monumentous sort of event in my life. And, you know, certainly during my teen years, I was a huge Descendants fan. I'm, I know I'm not alone in that sort of experience. I'm wondering if sort of the interaction with the fans, albeit, you know, it's not like, you know, like my high school, like it was me and probably like one or two other kids even knew what punk rock was beyond like, you know, a joke on some late night comedy show or something. I'm just wondering if sort of that sort of interaction with fans, both Descendants and Black Flag, but I'm just wondering if sort of that sort of interaction with the people, so to speak, uh, kind of fed some sort of your desire and interest to keep living this lifestyle. Okay, well, first I should mention that, yeah, in my high school too, like when I was in my, in my high school while I was there, there were, um, see, there were seven of us, I guess. There's me and Frank, Dave Nolte, Mars and Randy, Michelle Galassi. That's it. That's it. However many people I just named. So that was, that was, those were all the punk, those were all the people that were into punk rock there. So we were, yeah, we were, you know, kind of alone. The, the football quarterback would, you know, throw the last bite of his hot dog at us when he walked by whatever who cares but no the okay i mean the being in black flag and playing in front of 1000 2000 3000 people i mean that did feed my ego a little bit and probably too early because i remember for a brief period my personality changed a little bit i became i thought i was really talented i thought i was really special you know, I, and I didn't, what I didn't think is that I was fortunate and lucky, but I, I, I got over that very quickly. So maybe that, that ego thing was fed a little bit, but it didn't, it didn't reinforce my decision toward being, being in a band because I, I had no doubt. I never had any trepidation, never, ever, ever. The only time it ever came to question was like I said, was when I had a newborn baby. I guess the the last question I kind of have related to this is is you'd mentioned earlier about Milo going off to college, and I would imagine that that's you know here's somebody who is choosing. He's like, okay, I really have enjoyed being in a band. This is really cool. I think I'm proud of what we're we've done and all that. But you know, it's time to uh, do some other things. I'm just wondering. It doesn't sound like it gave you any sort of you know moment of pause or anything like that. But just. I guess I want to hear it from you. Yeah, well, there's a few things that come to mind. One is that Milo is a, in every sense of the word, he he's a he's a 
like a savant genius. So sitting in a van 10 hours a day, maybe, maybe you brought a book with you. There's, I mean, there's barely even any room in the van. Maybe you brought a book or, you know, there's just a lot of hurry up and wait on a tour, a lot of kind of sitting around picking your butt. I mean, that, that was never going to be enough for Milo. He's, he's a scientist. I mean, he, he needed to be a scientist, but his decision there never affected mine because I, I am not a scientist. I am a musician. And probably where I, I differ from many kinds of band members and certainly where I differ from a typical rock band vocalist is that I play guitar, bass, and drums all the time. I, I'm, I'm infatuated with playing music. Back then, I was even more infatuated with it. So playing guitar, playing bass, playing drums, and also taking an interest in recording and engineering, this, this satisfied my brain, but the band couldn't satisfy Milo's brain. So that, that all made sense. Like those two, those two philosophies coexisted perfectly to me. Earlier, you said something that kind of irritated me, and you had said something about you not being special, but I do think, in fact, that you are special, but it wasn't like it was a natural gift of, like, you know, it's very clear that from early on, you worked very hard at your craft, written a ton of songs. You don't really hear of many drummers who are, like, one of the main songwriters for a band. I guess what drove sort of this work ethic of doing all this stuff doing it all you know like i've been in bands where all right we practice like a couple times we got been in bands where we practice every single day for multiple hours but you know i would say most bands probably fall into the first one which is all right we'll meet once or twice a week maybe but you guys it was every day for many many hours and playing shows like non-stop i mean i guess what was the impetus for all that in a pure sense just we wanted to be great and we enjoyed the practice room time. Most of my, most of my most fond memories, like the memories that I will think of when I'm laying on my bed, dying, kind of running through my life. Most of those memories happened in a practice room somewhere. They didn't happen on a stage. They certainly didn't happen at a festival playing to 20,000 people. That's, that's not a memory. That's such an impersonal thing, you know? Just like when I saw concerts, like when I saw ACDC at, at an arena or Aerosmith or Kiss, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, those aren't memories. Fuck, I could barely see the band. But seeing the Germs play in front of 200 people with Darby was like three feet away from me. That was a memory. So the practicing, man, the practicing is like our special time. That's again, that's like our book club, our our uh, fantasy football team, our our uh, whatever whatever it is that you do when I'm when I'm on my deathbed, you know, guess who's going to be in the room? It's like, you know, duh, it's going to be my guys and my family and my guys. That's that's a no brainer. It's interesting. I was I a, a little while ago I talked to a, a guy named Craig Wedron who was in a band called Started to Think, and he was uh, diagnosed. Uh, with um, a type of cancer in the late 90s. But the people who were there were his closest family members and his band. They were the ones who were there at, at sort of like the worst moments of his life. Well, yeah, but being in a band, being in a band is like being married to three people. Or it's like having 
three three siblings you know who you who you're always with when um sort of the i guess they some people call it the second wave of punk in the 90s when you know suddenly you don't like my term <laughs> i i forget what you said i have a hey hey man i i have a brain tumor i don't have the greatest memory so <laughs> i called it the mall punk revolution yeah, yeah mall punk that's great um <laughs> the birth of the birth of hot topic and all that other sort of stuff yeah Okay, but anyway, what what was your question? I I don't know. We can keep keep, keep, keep going. Um, I want to. No, you 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 said at the time of the second wave of punk rock, and then I interrupted you. Now, what were you going to say? Oh yeah, 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 that's right. Thank you. I was going to say, um, I guess in my mind, um, certainly Descendants, and specifically, uh, yeah, sure, there were bands that kind of did pop punk before Descendants, but I think. The way that Descendants did it is very much sort of set the the the, the template, so to speak, for a lot of other bands. Um, just like when you guys like you and were touring in the early days, there was no there was no like how to manual. It wasn't like Maximum Rock and Roll had put out there like how to book your own tour guides yet. Basically, just figuring it out on your own. But I gotta wonder, like, when that second wave of '90s, when maybe it became a little bit easier it's got to be a little weird when you hear a lot of bands that are basically at least cribbing to a certain extent descendant style but then also nice because you're finally making a little bit of money did you did you say cribbing cribbing i don't know what the word i don't know what cribbing means yeah not necessarily copying but you know hey i like this song let's write something kind of in the style of that yeah taking heavy influence oh okay okay cool so i just learned a new I just learned a new slang word. Okay. So, all right. First, I should say that descendants, in my opinion, the descendants are not the seminal band of this thing. I would, you know, I would, I would be looking at the Buzzcocks, Generation X, the Ramones, a band called The Last, also from Hermosa Beach, and a band called the Alley Cats, which are also from the South Bay. Even the Go-Go's. Go-Go's used to be a great punk band with Melody. They kind of turned into a pop band, but they, that's not what they were when they started. Those are all bands that, that influenced us heavily. And our sound is kind of a, like if I really had to boil it down, I think our sound on Milo goes to college, which most people, they just, they consider that, like that's what we are. Okay, that I would call it one third the last, one third the alley cats, and one third black flag. That's I think what what was in our heads at that time. I'm not a loser was very much in the style of black flag. Myage was very much in the style of the alley cats. Uh, you know, Statue of Liberty was very much in the style of the last. And sometimes there'd be like hybrids. I'll, people will ask, well, you know, you guys, you know, descendants were a big influence on, uh, you know, Blink or Green Day or whatever. And I think, well, when I listen to Green Day, I definitely hear more buzzcocks than anything. They're one of the only bands that really, that really kind of grokked what the buzzcocks were doing and then kind of went somewhere with it. I think Blink, yeah, Blink's kind of... Pop, pop, a little bit more a sweet, sweeter version of 
I guess what we do, but I mean, they certainly, they, they all had all their influences, just like we had all our influences. I think it's more, I like to look at it more like it's a river, you know, and it's just running and it runs and it, it picks up things along the way and it drops off things along the way. It's just, it's a continuum and we're part of the continuum. I, I guess the other half of the question was kind of like, you know, it must've been nice to a certain degree to get kind of like be making a little bit more money, having that per diem be bumped up from $20 a day to maybe $30 a day. Well, once the, once we got the big record deal, then yeah, things changed radically. Then it was, then it was like we could live kind of as a, like a lower, lower middle class maybe. And then obviously there was the decision to move to Missouri. Well, that happened before the record deal. That was desperation because we were paying, we were paying two thousand a month rent for our little headquarters, which by that point was maybe the size of two living rooms. All right, and we were looking around and we're like, look, if we move to this little podunk town in Missouri. We can rent a huge four-bedroom house with two kitchens and two living rooms for 200 bucks a month. So that means we'll have 1,800 bucks a month extra each month. So we could actually move to Missouri and live, live like human beings, which is what we did. We did that for four years. But then when we got the massive record deal with Interscope, we, I mean, we realized Missouri wasn't ideal. You know, we only did it kind of for financial, financial survival. So once we had a little money, we moved to Fort Collins, which that kind of completes the, the Goldilocks story of like, you know, the porridge is too hot in LA. The porridge though is too cold in Missouri. So then in Fort Collins, the porridge is just right. It's interesting because actually when I was first introduced to Descendants. Uh, I was a friend of mine played uh, one of the records for me. I want to say it was Milo goes to college, but I could be wrong. Um, he was like, "This band's from from Missouri," and I remember we got all excited. That was like because I lived in the Midwest at the time, and I was like, "Oh wow, that's pretty cool." It's like because you always think of like places in New York or L.A. or whatever, and then like later learning, like, well, they're kind of from, from Missouri. <laughs> Just so. well, you can you know what you can take new. You can take new assurance in that because the reason we moved to Brookfield, Missouri, is that's where my father was born and where my father grew up. So in a way, part of the band is from Missouri. Yeah. Well, there's certainly, um, I would say that certainly uh, lyrically, whether it was intended or not, there is sort of like a Midwestern vibe. I guess it kind of goes back to what you're saying about sort of like the Buzzcocks. Like, because the Buzzcocks are really only the other band that I can really think of that had lyrics like Descendants had, which were like maybe it wasn't necessarily about like raging at the government or whatever social cause or whatever, but like human relationships. And, and that seemed like that was like, you know, that and food were obviously were the two big things. I mean, I actually once heard the joke that the only man who's written more songs about food is probably Weird Al. So. But he didn't write the songs, right? right. <laughs> he just, oh, oh, he, he put, I see what you mean. He put food lyrics over, uh, over uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I see what you mean. Yes, yeah. yes. 
So I don't know that you would necessarily want to call yourself the Weird Al of punk rock. But, no, I, I, mean, I guess there's an argument to be made there. So I, no, I don't think of us that way. But I don't know. I don't know what I think of us as because we <laughs> don't have a thing. Like there's there's four different songwriters on each album. You'll notice each guy wrote about three or four songs. Okay, so and then there's also when we write mm -hmm. in combination with one another. Like when Milo writes lyrics for Stefan's music or when I do, or when Carl and Stefan write a song together or whatever. So the, we don't have a thing. Like we don't have a party line or like a, here's, here's what we have to sound like. I, I guess uh, another thing that always has intrigued me is just the fact that, like you said before, uh, you were not just playing drums, you were playing guitar and bass and writing songs and things like that and writing lyrics and, and all that. I, uh, why just be... A drummer when when it come, when push comes to shove it's time to record and tour and all that yeah and, and even that that even that wasn't conscious that's probably one of the funniest stories is right around the same time i got my drum set which my father bought for me my mother who was divorced from my father my mother gave me as kind of an heirloom she gave me her grandfather's acoustic guitar so i had this acoustic guitar and i started playing it and then i swear to god this all was in a one month period then on a on a tuesday because our trash day was tuesday there in her in hermosa i went out to to take the can out to the curb you know the neighbor's can had it had an instrument sticking out of it like i could see the headstock you know, where the tuning pegs are. So I went over and I grabbed the instrument out of the trash and it was a hollow body bass that was missing one string. So now I had drums and guitar and bass so I could write, My Edge was my first song and I wrote it on, on bass, you know, right? And then I, then I wrote guitar chords. Like my very first song, I wrote every stroke of the pick of every instrument. And then, and then my second song was Bikeage. This is kind of, it's kind of, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's kind of insane because, you know, at the time, like when I heard those songs, I was just starting out on bass and it's like, those are not easy bass lines. <laughs> and for it to be like the first thing you wrote is like, what? Yeah, but if you listen to the Alley Cats, you'd hear it. You'd hear where that's coming from. Or the Ruts too. The Ruts, like Babylon's Burning. You, you hear it, it's... You know, I didn't just pull it out of a cloud. I, I, I was, you know, influenced by things just like we all are. Yeah, but I think nowadays I don't do that so much. I don't write like every single thing that everybody's going to play. I try to come in with a more open mind and open structure so that the band guys can put their two cents in. Our really great songs are when you can really hear each band guy putting in their two cents worth. It, it reminds me kind of of the story of how when Pete Townsend wrote My Generation, it's like, he did a little demo version of it and he played a bass solo on it, but the one that eventually John Entwistle did was, was more advanced basically. It's just, it's, is that kind of what you're saying is that you're, you're roughing things in place with a very strong vision and sense of what the final product will be. Yeah. Cause a smart person knows that if he's got a great band and I mean, now, you know, I've got Carl and Stefan and Milo. I mean, I have a great band knows that if you have a great band it's your best to let them do their thing and not not just tell them here here's what you're going to play 
one one question I have: Descendants versus all. I mean, in my mind, all and Descendants are two very different bands. Like, there's some commonality certainly in sort of like the way some of the sounds and things like that. But like the overall tones and stuff are different to me. Like the song structures for all are more complex. There's a little bit more distortion and gain in all. Um, it's just a little bit. I mean, but. In your mind, are they different bands or are they, they kind of the same band? Like one's just an offshoot of the other band? I mean, how do you view the relationship between the two bands? I view it as sort of a two-headed baby. I'll, I will tell you this. If we're working on all, I don't put my all hat on. And then when we're working on Descendants, I put my Descendants hat on. Mm -hmm. I just leave my Bill hat on the whole time. And so do the other guys. But it just so happens that the influence of that fourth person, you know, the singer being the difference between the two, well, that mm -hmm. catalyzed, catalyzed a certain different chemistry. And so they, they do have their differences, but, you know, mostly they have similarity. Like we, we try to approach it that each song is kind of unto itself. Kind of you're taking each sort of like moment of creative inspiration in of itself and just making it the best song you can. Yep, yep. I want to transition to sort of the 2000s. Get married, you start having kids. What was sort of the first sign that something wasn't right for you? Uh, if I'm honest, probably 2006 or seven. I just started very steadily and gradually gaining weight and kind of losing my sharpness, my alertness, and also my kind of my lust for life. But sadly, I mean, this really is sad. Sadly, I chalked it up to getting old. And I thought, well, this is just what it's like when you get older. And I'm like, wow, this sucks. And my, my first reaction, then this would have been in like 2008. So I, at that point, I was probably up to 350 pounds. And I just had no interest really in anything. I remember thinking, wow, if this, if this is what, what it's going to be like, I don't fucking want to live anymore. I'm just going to kill myself because this sucks. But what I should have done is go, wow, there's something wrong with me. I should go to the doctor. But I didn't do that. And to my wife's credit, my wife approached me and she told me that there's something wrong with me. And she even used the term, you know, you're not the man I married. And I'm kind of like, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got old. I'm sorry I got old and fat. You know, fuck you. And, you know, I'm fucking working. I'm supporting your ass. Fuck you. Right. But she said, no, that's not what I mean. She's like, I mean, you need to go to the doctor. There's something is not right about you. And I just blew her off. So I let it get way out of hand. I got up to 400 pounds. It's big. 400. Mm -hmm. 400 pounds. It's, 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 it's fucking crazy. Okay. And I was just a useless pile and I was just sitting on the, in front of the TV, watching TV. And so eventually I went in the emergency room cause I threw a blood clot up into my lungs. And then once, so that was a pulmonary embolism. Okay. So once I, once I was in the hospital, they started doing more and more tests and then they, then they gave me intelligence tests. Now, I, I was a very good student. I was an honor student, you know, my whole, my whole life through, through high school and through the amount of college that I did finish. 
Okay, but so I did these intelligence tests and they told me that I had the intelligence of a fifth grader. And I told them, fuck you. My house is about three blocks from here. I'll go get all my report cards because I still have them all. You're fucking high. I was given those cognitive tests and it was kind of the same thing. I was just like, I remember actually getting very heated and very argumentative with the people administrating the test. But brain tumors are no joke, man. They mess with your head big time and how you think and process. And I think yours was, yours was a frontal lobe, which is, yeah. you know, yeah, even more so. It fucks with your personality too, so. Yeah, so mine was perfectly placed. It was frontal lobe, optic nerve, left brain and right, right brain. I mean, it was the size of a large orange. So, you know, it was affecting everything. But so what they did, though, is they almost got there. And I remember Stacy telling him, my wife telling him, can't you give him a brain scan or something? Can't you find out what's wrong with him? He's not like this. And they're like, well, we don't know what he was like before. So they, they then proceeded to give me a, a, a veritable parade of psychotropic drugs and amphetamine and at different times and you know of course none of it worked and then i and then i kept falling for no reason having brain seizures so it wasn't until so that's so there's the neurologist you know great job you guys so then it wasn't until one morning i woke up and i couldn't see everything looked kind of kind of like somebody threw dirt in my eyes or something so i went to the eye doctor I swear to God, I'm not making this up. I walked in there and he goes, well, what's wrong? And I go, I can't see. And he seriously, he looked at me and he put his two fingers on each side of my temple so he could look me square in the eye. And he goes, you need to go get an MRI. So that, that meeting with the eye doctor took 10 seconds and he knew that I had a brain tumor. 10 seconds. So I went across the street and got an MRI and there it was, the brain tumor. So once they got that out of there, I resumed, for the most part, I resumed my, got back to my old self. I'm still carrying more weight than I wish, wish I were, but I mean, I went from 400 to 250. So I guess, I guess I'll take that as a win. <laughs> yeah, it's the little victories. Um, unfortunately, I, I, the, the, I, I wish I could say that what your particular story, and thank you for sharing it, by the way. I wish I could say that it was unique, but unfortunately, it seems like a lot of people I've talked to have a very sort of similar thing where nobody can really kind of figure out what it is. And then there's just like the one doctor who's just like, oh, yeah, it's this. I go get it checked out. And, and it turns out that that person is right. What kind of a tumor did you have? I have an astrocytoma. It's, I was only partially um, operable because it's in my brainstem and cerebellum. So it messes with my balance and like some of my coordination. I definitely the idea of having something swelling in your head, it messes with a lot of stuff. I know somebody else who had, I believe you had a meningioma. Yes. And um, it's no joke. I mean, it's, uh, uh, she wound up losing uh, right side. She had a lot, has a lot of right side paralysis, especially her right arm. But it's, it's no joke. There's no such thing as a good tumor or a good cancer or whatever you want to call it. It's, they all suck. What was your sort of initial reaction to finding out that you had a tumor and potentially that there were some really serious problems with it? Well, I, I was happy because, you know, they told me it was likely benign and that it was likely operable and I would likely recover 
largely from it. Uh, it may take a little time, you know, but, and so I was very happy. I was happy because I didn't know what had happened to me. I just thought I had gotten old and lazy. And if you, if you know me, you know, I'm not a lazy person and I don't, I don't like to sit around. It's not how I am, but that's exactly what I was doing. So I was very happy to know that there was this other factor, this pernicious influence upon me that, that they were going to remove from me. I was very happy. When I got out of the surgery, I mean, when I woke up, it was, it was immediate joy. And everyone that was sitting there when I woke up, and they just went, oh, my God, that's Bill again. Uh, the way I was talking, you know, the things I was saying, the kind of jokes I was making. And uh, the other interesting thing, I, I, I was very fortunate, I'll just say that in the beginning, but the other interesting thing is that they had anticipated that I might be in various kinds of physical therapy or occupational therapy, maybe speech therapy for a while that I would have to relearn some skills and stuff. But the truth, the God's truth of the matter is I walked out of that hospital 48 hours after they did the surgery with 56 staples in my head. Do you have any idea as to why? Lucky. It's just like with the drumming. I don't think I'm special. I think I was very, very lucky. Well, I, for one, am very glad. You've certainly given a lot of gifts to a lot of people, whether you think you have or not. You definitely have made an impact on a lot of pe people, myself included. I definitely feel like I was born again. It gave me a renewed, a renewed sense of being alive as you could imagine it would i mean it almost sounds like a cliche to say that out loud i'm i'm just i'm just really fortunate and i've you know I'm, when i hang up the phone i'm going over to you know in filmage you see mark nagel the doctor so after i hang up i'm going to mark's house he and i are we're like best friends now and uh it's his birthday today and i'm going over to hang out with him so i'm just grateful that i that I had such a strong team of doctors. I mean, that I still do because I still have little, little problems. And, you know, I have a kind of positive attitude the way that I did when I was in my twenties, which is great. I love it. But one more nod to the, to the ophthalmologist, the eye doctor, uh, Dr. Frazier. Okay. I started losing my vision in 2017, 16. So this is recent. This is recent. Okay my left vision just started to go. So I go in and he goes, Oh, well, you got, you got a cataract. Let's do a cataract surgery. So we did a cataract surgery and I came back a week later and I go, well, the surgery didn't work. I still can't see out of my left eye. And he goes, let me take a look. And he goes, no, the surgery worked. I did it right. You don't have cataract anymore. And if you still can't see it's because you have brain tumor. And I go, no, I don't have brain tumor. I just had an MRI this month. And the, neuro, the neurosurgeon told me there's no, there's no regrowth. And he goes, you tell him to look again. So the eye doctor said, no, tell him to look again. So I called up the, the neurosurgeon. And I go, my eye doctor says, you need to take a closer look at that MRI. And sure enough, I had a little bit of brain tumor growing back against my optic nerve. Oh, shit. And the eye doctor just knew it because he's a fucking baller. So 
what I had to do is I had to have radiation five days a week for two months. But that, you know, that wasn't a big deal. It just, it kind of debilitated me for a few months, but that, that, was, that wasn't a big deal. Everybody's different. I mean, some people have very minimal sort of issues going after they've had sort of the initial treatments and surgeries and all that. Other people have like a ton of issues. I mean, there, there's a little bit of fallout. There's a little fallout. When I had the tumor, when the tumor was, you know, seven centimeters, okay, and I weighed 400 pounds, I had gout. I had a pulmonary embolism. I had dried blood clots lodged in my lungs. I had diabetes. I had nerve damage in my feet from having the diabetes. Now where I stand is I don't have dried blood clots in my lungs because I had another, another, another doctor go in and do a surgery to take those out of there. And that happened at the same time I had a triple bypass, all at the same time. Okay, so I don't have, I don't have the blood clots anymore. I don't have gout anymore. I don't have diabetes anymore. I don't really have any trouble. The only thing I do have is the, the nerve damage that I did to my feet. Even though I got rid of the diabetes, I didn't get rid of the nerve damage. That's going to be there forever. Your body's seen some shit. That manifests itself in, I can't feel the bottom of my feet. I, I, I can't feel them. I mean, like ever. But, but that's not so bad, you know. I really appreciate you sharing aside a part of your story that I think, I mean, it's really not a secret, but it's not necessarily as out there as some other things. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't mind sharing because, you know, my story to this point has been a, a pretty fortunate one, a pretty happy one, but you know, we do have to both acknowledge that not everybody's story ends up happy. All, you know, all the time I've spent in the hospital, there were people dying all left and right of me, you know, so we always have to remember that and, and be, be, uh, you know, thankful for how, how lucky we are. Yeah. Let's hear for the, let's hear for the eye doctors. Okay. So that's it. Another one down. Congratulations on making it. Hopefully you got something from listening to that. Not just little, little tidbits about punk rock history, but also a little bit lessons about life or something like that. Anyway, as I sort of alluded to before, there's part three to this series of sort of musical artists and things you can learn about life or not learn uh, or not care. It's up to you. Anyway, um, I'm getting a lot from this. So, but part three uh, next week, I'm gonna take a little bit of a break from music folks. Certainly not the last music person that I'll be talking to. Have some interesting names lined up, but might be music out by now. I don't want to establish that this is a music podcast because it's not. I don't know what this podcast is. I'm just here spreading a potpourri of my random thoughts into the universe. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. New episodes of the R3 podcast most Sundays. See the episode description for notes and where to find more online.